Creatures from beyond the stars. Aliens from another world. Beings outside of our comprehension. These things have always puzzled and intrigued mankind. But what is their goal? Some people say they're here to save the Earth. Some people say they're here to enslave it. But today we're going to take a look at two encounters involving three different women who have a different take on the alien phenomenon. That aliens are here to breed with us, even if it's against our will, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. You know, I'm going to start this episode off with actually a recommendation for another podcast that's normally not a good thing to do, but I've listened to another podcast, and I really think you guys would dig it. I really think you guys would love this podcast. It's a fictional podcast, but it deals with a lot of the stuff that Dead Rabbit Radio talks about, and it's a radio drama, and it's extremely well done. You're stepping... I'm not getting sponsored by these guys. Trust me. When I tell you what it is, you guys will be like, no, there's no way these guys gave you any money. They really have a great way of building a soundscape. You really feel like you're part of the story. The podcast is called Wolverine The Long Night. And it is if you took Dead Rabbit Radio, all the stuff we cover, threw it in a blender, and then dropped Wolverine into it. It's it's Twin Peaks Season 3 with Wolverine running around. It has like ley lines and haunted sacred spots and old Native American legends. You have government conspiracies. You have true crime. You have, like, corrupt official... Not true crime, because it's fictional, but... You have, like, criminal organizations in the town. You have eco-terrorists. You have all of this crazy stuff. And then Wolverine's just running around just gutting people the whole time. And it's the Wolverine I grew up with. Because, in like, in the 80s, he was a merciless murderer. Like, he was an X-Men, but he was constantly killing low-level goons. And this is him. He murders so many people over the course of the story. I think the story probably has a body count of maybe 70 people that he just guts the whole time. Not fan fiction. Wolverine, The Long Night. I can't... That's season one. Season one's a self-contained story. Season two's coming out now. I can't vouch for that. But season one, I really... It's a fictional version of the stuff we cover on this show with guts everywhere. It's great. Check it out. Okay, let's move on to our podcast. We the, both of our stories today are related, and they're not they're not only related in the way that you think that they are. It's very very interesting that I came across both these stories in such a short amount of time. But let's go ahead. It's March thirtieth, nineteen eighty eight. A mother and a daughter. Mom's name is Carol. Daughter's name is Helen. Carol and Helen Thomas. They work at the same factory, so they meet up. This is in Britain. They meet up and they. Take, they walk together. That's fun. Little mother-daughter activity, hanging out, doing stuff. They go through a walk through the alleyway. Well, I, not just any alleyway. There's an alleyway they walk through to get to work. Broad daylight. Isn't in the middle of the night. It's not in the middle of the forest. That's what makes the story particularly creepy. Carol and Helen Thomas are on their way to work. They're walking through the alleyway. And they start to hear a loud humming coming from overhead. They see a bright light. So... That's the humming noise. That's humming. That's not the light noise. And then, boop, bright light. They feel dizzy and nauseous for just a second. And they just continue to walk through the alleyway. But now, they don't like blink. They don't like, they're walking and then they're simply like mid-step. 
But now Heather's jacket, her leather jacket, is soaking wet. Wasn't raining. Rest of their clothes are bone dry. They heard the humming and the beep. They didn't hear the light, but they saw the light. And then they're back in the alleyway just walking. But now her jacket is drenched. They're like, what the hell just happened? Quite odd. They get to, <laughs> to say the least, to say the least. I'm sure like she's like, the fir- I don't know how I would react in that situation. I would probably also wet my pants. I mean, like, imagine just going about your business and then you turn a corner and part of your body is soaked. You'd be like, what? Is there a super choker nearby? Did I walk through a low-hanging cloud, a human-sized, a jacket-sized cloud? What could have possibly happened? They get to work and the guard is like, dude, where you guys been, man? You guys are late. You guys are, you guys were supposed to be here like an hour or two ago. And they're like, what? And he's like, and you're fired because your jacket is wet. No, they didn't do that. But they did think it was weird because they're normally punctual. And they're like, we just left our house. And the guy's like, oh, just go in there and do whatever you did that Jason didn't write down. Go work at this nondescript factory. Over the next couple weeks, they start to get blisters over their body. They start to get blisters specifically on their face and their arms. Now, that's bad enough because you're like, what is going on? Like, blisters coming out of nowhere is disgusting. Blisters are disgusting anyways. I actually learned a tip if you want, if you walk a lot, because I walk a lot, wear two pairs of socks because that way you, you don't get blisters because your foot is uh, the sock. I don't know what the science is behind it, but it does work. So anyways, they didn't have socks to put over their heads and arms. They're getting blisters everywhere. They started having nosebleeds. And grossly enough, the, even grosser than all that stuff, they started having an unknown substance leak out of their navels. Just bloop, bloop. So at that point, I mean, you figure you're probably rotting. But six years later, they end up running into Tony Dodd, who was a big UFO investigator at the time. He wrote a book involving this story called Alien Investigator. So basically himself. AI. Alien Investigator. That would be a cool Magna P.I. show. Like, you have him in the Bahamas. Oh, never mind. This guy's in England. That would be super dreary. He couldn't make anything fun in England. Anyways, so forget my story pitch. Alien investigator Tony Dodd. He goes, that's an interesting story, because they always had suspicions about what happened, but it didn't really fit to anything they knew of. Happened in the middle of the day, in the middle of the city, both of them together, and the only thing they knew was the humming, the light, and a wet jacket. Oh, yeah, and the blisters and the horrible body trauma. Tony Dodd has them undergo hypnosis. And this is this is what they remember through hypnosis. So I know a lot of people kind of poo-poo on hypnosis. And it may... I've always seen it as a double-edged sword. Where at some points, like, that may be the only way you get that information. But on the other hand, in the hands of... There's a lot of hands in this, in this segment. In the wrong hands, it can... Uh, in an unscrupulous hypnotist or someone with an agenda, they can definitely do all that stuff not like actually abduct you but you know what i mean like they can put false memories in your head so it's always hard to really know uh, how to take hypnosis stories some of them could be true and getting information we couldn't get otherwise and then other ones could be totally false and made up because someone has an agenda but this is the story that came out with carol and helen thomas when that bright light flashed they disappeared out of the alleyway they were basically beamed aboard somewhere They wake up in a totally sterile white room, which is something how you would imagine like a science room or a high-tech room to be. They're both frozen on tables. Carol looks over. She can barely move. She looks over. She sees Helen laying on the table next to her, but she didn't necessarily seem conscious at this point. And the room was populated by what we know of as gray aliens. Three to four feet tall, 
big old bulbous heads, tiny little skinny bodies, and giant eyeballs. Little tiny slip mouth. Classic gray alien figure. She said the the room had a window. It was like a circular room, and the room had a window all the way around it, almost like an observation room. So you could imagine there's probably other aliens outside watching it, other alien medical students. And she noticed that there was a wet, net-like material over her legs that was keeping her immobile. It was like a wet, netted cloth is how she described it. I don't know what they did to keep her upper body immobilized, but she at least noticed that there was a wet, netted cloth is how she put it that kept her immobilized. When the aliens touched her, she said their skin was wet to the touch. Very amphibian-like. They weren't... I've always figured that gray aliens were kind of dry, maybe a little flaky, maybe dandruff, like bodies made of dandruff. But apparently in her, I've always liked the reptilians, I'd imagine, would be kind of slimy, but she's saying the grays were actually wet to the touch. And what she noticed was one of the aliens was really into Helen's leather jacket. To the point that he took it off her and began rubbing it all over him. So that was the why how it got drenched. He was rubbing the jacket all over his face and body because he was so intrigued by the feel of the leather jacket. And that's how it got drenched. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. He's like, Bleh. they See, they probably abduct so many cows that to see a cow in its unnatural form and its leather form he's like what is this oh man i remember this feeling i remember the feeling of my first cow abduction anyways he's rubbing it on himself reliving the memories of his first cow she notices carol notices it's funny because all of these now that i'm looking at my notes all of these really seem to come from carol's point of view i wonder if helen just kind of was a dud when it came to the hypnosis or she just never woke up during the procedure but she notices these glass vials being put on their belly buttons her and helen's belly buttons and she said, I couldn't say for sure what um, th- what they were doing, but I had a feeling, because they never communicated with me. They never talked to me or tried to calm me down or nothing like that. I had a feeling that what they were doing is they were removing our eggs from our body. Removing our little tiny human eggs through our belly button. She had two final details. One has been reported in other UFO encounters where there were monitors in the room that were showing footage of violent actions and war movies. Not like war movies like Saving Private Ryan, but like footage of like actual live leak level footage of people getting their heads blown off during war. And that has actually, other UFO abductees have seen things like that as well. Seen violent visual images. Now, some people have said that's to show us that Earth is on a doomed path if we could. I don't think so. I think... If that detail is true, and if it's not just a side effect of the trauma of being abducted by an alien, I think it's probably something more to disorient the viewer. Because people hate watching shocking stuff, especially if they... I know some people are like super edgy and they're into it, but for the most part, a normal person doesn't want to watch a bunch of people get blown up. So if they're already trying to mess with your head, that's a good way to do it. It's very clockwork orangian. Especially if it's something that brutal. Because it would just be a process. It would be part of the process of breaking down your mind. And there was another interesting detail. At some point, a tall humanoid entered the room. And it's described as what we call a Nordic alien. A Nordic alien is one of the biggies. It's one of the famous alien types. We have the gray aliens. We have the reptilians, which is kind of self-explanatory. And then we have the Nordics. And they are tall humanoid. They're basically tall humans are blonde-haired, blue-eyed aliens. Now, generally, they're considered to be, some people consider them to be the good aliens, and then some people think that they're actually the evil alien. I I mean, who knows if any of this is real, but there's a lot of discussion on who's good and who's not. 
But anyways, at some point, the tall humanoid, the tall Nordic walks in, and he's wearing a silver suit. Again, we've seen that detail quite a lot, like a silver unitard. And on the suit, there was an insignia that was a blue badge with a special emblem on it. It was a circle, a triangle, and two wavy lines. Now, that's really all the information we get out of this. Nobody can really follow it up because the names Carol and Helen Thomas may not be true. Tony Dodd, in his book, said, some of these names I've changed for the sake of privacy. So, there's really no follow-up to this story. And it's one of those things, like, how would you follow it up? Like, even if you located these people, there's either one of two things going on. Well, three. One... They're totally freaked out all the time, afraid it's going to happen again. Two, they've moved on with their lives. Or three, they don't want to talk to you or they've gone missing. I guess that's four. That's that. I mean, we really have to go, uh, well, we don't have to, but I mean, Tony Dodd wrote this and you can either accept it as true or not. But I remember reading it and thinking, that's an interesting story. And then shortly later, it was on the same day because I was reading a bunch of UFO stuff for this episode. I found another intriguing story along the same vein with a few interesting differences and one very, very interesting similarity. And these stories are not connected in any way. Even the articles that I read about them weren't like, oh, it's like this similar incident. So I was like stumbling across those that stuff and making those connections that really haven't been made before. Let's go ahead. We are going to walk through an alleyway in Britain, disappear, and we're going to appear in Arizona. Your clothes are wet, mine aren't. And we're back at the Superstition Mountains. We've been here a lot in this podcast, really. Uh, there was the skeleton running around with the light bulb in his shower, the lantern in his chest. We had the camel, the haunted camel. I really like that story. That one was great. I tell that story to people, like on the street. Stop them. Hey, sir, have you ever heard the story about the, what was that? Colorado Phantasma. Yeah, I really like that story because it kind of has like a beginning, a middle, and an end. You get all the details and then a little twist at the end. Anyways, it's March. 2000. We're in Arizona Superstition Mountains. There's a young woman named Angie, and we know that's a fake name. And this is a story that has been, this is the way this story goes, is that Angie, who's a pseudonym, apparently told her friend Phyllis Davis, Phyllis Davis, who wrote this up for this UFO website. So, yeah, there's a little bit more, that might seem a little more iffy, because, well, I guess it's the same thing as writing the book. Yeah, never mind. It's, it has the same level of credibility. But, okay, let's get, so, yeah. Let's go ahead and do this. So, Angie is hiking. She loves hiking up the Superstition Mountains. It's what she enjoys doing. I don't get it. Walking up stuff, it's kind of lame. Walking down stuff is kind of lame, too. Just walk in a normal, flat plane. Like, what's the point of elevating yourself? Doesn't make any sense. But anyways... She walks up these mountains and then walks down. And she goes, man, that was, a fun, that was a fun day. She walks up and she also likes to bring home gems. Little rocks. Little shiny rocks. She likes to take them home and then put them on her mantle. Again, it just seems like such a bizarre hobby. I'm not a big experience guy. Like, I'm not a big experience hobbyist. Like, people, there's, in Hood River, there's a big community of, like, windsurfers and stuff like that. And I get, I mean, like, yeah, let's go out to the river and, like, surf a bit, and then we come home. Like, I don't get that. I think it's because my memory is so shoddy that I could have a wonderful adventure and then just not know. I know within a year I'm I'm barely going to remember it. I just am not an experienced, I don't travel, I'm just not an experienced guy. But anyways, so she is, 
And I guess she's bringing home rocks, so, you know, that's cool, too. She's a nerd. She sees a cave off in the distance, and she goes, Oh, I never noticed that cave before. I'm going to go in that cave, catch some shade. Well, she goes into the cave. She's drinking her water. She sees a shiny, shiny rock on the ground. She bends over to pick it up, and then she's driving home. Superstition Mountains are behind her, and she's in her car, and she's driving home. And she's like, what happened, dude? What is going on? And she's trying to reconstruct like how she got from the cave into her car, started it, and drove a good couple miles before she gets her memory back. She's like, what in the world just happened? She goes home, and she takes a two-hour-long shower. And she goes, I don't know why, but I just felt compelled to just keep scrubbing myself and da-da-da-da-da. And, yeah, I think you kind of can get where this story's going. She, the next couple days, she's completely depressed. She won't show up to work. She won't return anyone's phone call. If people think there's something wrong with her, there is something wrong with her. They go to her house, and... She's just basically just laying on her couch. She's like, uh... And they're like, hey, Angie, you gotta do something. She's like, first off, that's not my real name. But secondly, I don't have to do anything. Like, I don't know what's going on. I just feel, like, super crummy, and I can't remember anything. And she's telling people, like, it's up in the mountains. I was finding rocks. And the next thing I knew was driving my car, and people were like, did you get, like, brain damage or something? Did you fall? Because that can happen. You can have, like, temporary amnesia. She starts having all these nightmares. She can't figure stuff out. And finally, someone says, dude, you got to go see somebody. Now, she ends up going to a hypnotist. Now, I don't know if that was her first course of action. She's like, "Uh, why can't I remember stuff? I'm going to go to a hypnotist. Or if she went to, she went like a route where she went to a doctor who referred her to a psychologist who referred her to a hypnotist and so on and so forth. But at this point, people are kind of working on the theory that she may have gotten sexually assaulted or something traumatically happened to her or she suffered some sort of brain injury which i think is why you want to go to the doctor first figure out what happened at the hypnotist this is a very very interesting story very interesting story because a lot of it there's little details in it that are quite believable she goes to the hypnotist and this is the story that comes out she goes i was bending over in the cavern to pick up the rock And I heard something behind me, and I turned around, and I saw a man wearing like a reptile mask, like like a Halloween-type mask of a reptile. And I go, Charlie, is that you? Because she could only imagine that it was a human in a mask. And it's funny, because there have been situations I've been in that have been equally shocking. Not as shocking as what's coming up for her, but I've been in situations that have been shocking Look, I remember when my car got this, and I'm not comparing my car stolen to what happened to her, but I remember when my car got stolen, I remember thinking, I remember checking my pockets for my car. Like, did I put it in my pockets? And then I thought, maybe I left it in my apartment. And then it took me, I go, wait, a, no, I, of course, I can't fit a car in my pocket. But you're in shock. Like, I was in absolute shock that my car got stolen right out of my driveway. I, that, that was the first time that it happened. It happened multiple times after that, but. It's the first time that it ever happened. I was like, did, where did, did I, is it in my pocket? And so your brain makes these weird leaps of logic when you're shocked. So when she's out in the middle of nowhere all by herself and sees a human, humanoid, with a reptile mask, she's going to assume someone, a friend of hers, was trying to pull a prank on her because she's in shock. But it doesn't take her long to realize it's not Charlie. 
And by the way the face is moving, it's not a mask. She doesn't remember anything after that until she wakes up in some sort of room. She wakes up and she's held down by what she describes as a gelatinous substance. So the same type of restraint used in the case in England in, I think it was 1988. One was a net-like wet cloth. This one's a gelatinous thing, but there's some, they're not held down by any sort of psychic ability or clamps or, or cages like yesterday's episode. There's some sort of substance that really can't be identified on top of them, holding them down. So her captors, according to her, were reptilians. And she said they had greenish skin. So it wasn't like a super green iguana. Just had a green hue to their scales. It was interesting. She said some of them had big mouths with lots of like folds around their mouth. And some of them had thinner mouths with no folds around their mouth. And she thought that could be a signifier of how old they were. The alien, let me read you this description here for how she described how the aliens were dressed and things like that. Two aliens wore either a gray scarf or a wide ribbon draped over their shoulder. Under the soft looking ribbons, they wore a white jumpsuit, which we get that a lot, the jumpsuit, a white jumpsuit with an insignia that showed a curved dragon with a seven point star in the middle of it. The other reptile men wore black uniforms with the same insignia. A tall, white skin, so taller than the rest of them, a tall reptilian enters the room who has white scales, comes inside. The tall, white-skinned lizard man wore a burnt orange jumpsuit with three insignias on the left side. There was a black inverted triangle, the round dragon with star, and an oval with moving stars on it. She felt fascinated by that one. It looked like watching a 3D movie in miniature. On the right side of his uniform were three black bars on a silver disc. On the left cuff of his sleeve, he wore a row of inverted triangles with three lines cutting through it. I found that last one the most intriguing because that insignia sounds near identical to the insignia in the 1988 story. The 1988 story had a little less detail to it, but she described a blue badge with a triangle and two wavy lines. And this one, he wore a row of inverted triangles with three lines cutting through it. Now, you could say there's only so many geometrical shapes that can be out there. Of course, there's going to be some similarities. But the fact that they're wearing badges in the first place are interesting. I've never really come across that in alien abduction stories. Where they're actually wearing these insignias. I'm sure that they're out there. But these guys seem to be particularly suited up. Is the triangle and the two wavy lines and the row of triangles and the three lines, are those different ranks within this alien hierarchy? Is it an emblem of a scientist? Because remember, the humanoid who came in and they can't remember anything past that in 1988, he was wearing this emblem, he was in charge. And in this story, the white-skinned alien reptile walks into the room And he's also wearing this emblem. And he's in charge. And what's interesting is she said, Angie said, she goes, I could tell that he was more human. He was sympathetic. I felt like I could communicate with him rather than the other ones. Now, she's obviously pleading to be let go. And these reptilians are just kind of moving about. But she goes, the tall, white-skinned one 
seemed to be more compassionate. She has a vague feeling of what's going to happen because she's strapped down to this table and she's surrounded by all these aliens. And and really, according to her report, she doesn't even really know if she's on a UFO. She's just somewhere. But they take off her clothes. And now the fear is welling up in her. And she's pleading to this lead alien, this tall, white-skinned reptilian, to let her go. But in the back of her mind, she has a really bad feeling about what's going on. And that's when she starts to notice there are these pipes running along the room, like these long pipes that just kind of are on the wall and all the ceiling. And each one ha- each pipe has a couple of sacks hanging from it. And she's looking at it. It catches her attention. She's looking at it, and she sees something move in the sack. And she goes, immediately, I was reminded of when my dog was pregnant and super pregnant, and the puppies were moving in her belly. She goes, I knew for sure then that something was alive in all of those sacks hanging around me. And I know for sure then what they were going to do to me. Why I was in this breeding chamber. Another alien, uh, like she described him as a like a mus- uh, tall, not as tall as the big giant leader one, but this tall muscular alien. And this one has... Human genitalia, I mean, obviously it wasn't like fleshy, it was reptilian, but he had an erect penis, and she completely lost it, because now she knows it's time, it, it's do or die time. She begins fighting so hard, she starts, she starts breaking through the gelatinous ooze that is holding her down, to the point that one of the aliens has to break out a stun gun, and the last thing she remembers is a blue light hitting her in the face, and then she's driving down the road. She actually, they, the person who wrote this up for this UFO website said, Angie's doing a lot better now. She had a really hard time when she went through the hypnosis. She was having an even worse time because now she's really trying to figure out what was going on. You'd much rather have fallen down and gotten brain damage. But nowadays she's doing fine. She just has never gone back to the Superstition Mountains, the place that she always went to go and enjoy hiking around and finding rocks. She never went back there. She doesn't like talking about it. She doesn't even like you know, looking at them. A lot of interesting details to these stories. One, you have the similar, you have like the, the a physical item holding them down rather than some sort of stunning device or telepathy or something like that. You have the insignias matching or having close enough a match that if you saw someone with an eagle and two stars on their lapel and you saw someone, another person, with an eagle and two triangles on the lapel, you would go, that they're probably related in some way. You know, you can see comparisons between even military medals and go, oh, this must these guys must be in the same military branch. It's not like one guy has a bear and the other guy has a rooster. These ones have the triangles and the wavy lines or the triangles and the straight lines and things like that, which would make me think that those are related in some way. Both of them involve people who were being abducted for what we believe and for what they believe to be the purpose of interbreeding with humans. So we have the insignia matching these stories. If the insignia was on the story about aliens doing crop circles, it would be a little less of a connection. We have two people separated by 22 years on two different continents describing two similar incidents with a similar styled badge. Two stories of abduction, separated by 22 years, involving three women. Both involve interbreeding with aliens, 
Both involve doing it against their will. Both involve a taller alien. Both of them involve memory loss. Flights of fancy? Possibly. But it could also point towards a very dark program going on on the planet Earth. Are human women being abducted and being used to create alien hybrids? That question is as old as sci-fi itself. The miracle of life, the fact that women can even give birth, is such a miracle on this planet. And for it to be perverted for some unknown reason, there's thousands of theories of why aliens, if they do this, if any of this is true, why aliens would do this. Is it an invasion? Do they want an alien hybrid army to infiltrate us? Is it to prepare humanity for the coming climate change? Is it a way to create superhumans? Humans who have special emotional and psychic abilities, indigo children as they're known, to help lead humanity towards a greater future. And I could go on and on with the theories surrounding alien hybrids. But my personal theory is probably the most frightening. I believe if aliens are abducting women, and either through physical sex or removing their eggs, this program to create hybrids, to create a human-alien offspring, I think it's being done for the same reason why someone walks up a mountain. Because it's there. Because they can. Because why not? You have the technology at your disposal. You have a species around you that you consider lesser than yourself. Disposable. Why not? The aliens that are around us may be less General MacArthur, may be less Gandhi, and may be more like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy, but just with suits and badges and spaceships. We always assign these ideas that there are either these generals in these intergalactic armies, or they're peace-loving aliens ready to bring us to the ninth dimensional level. But they may just be an organization made up of quote-unquote normal people. Even in the best organization on Earth, there is at least one psychopath. At least one. So there may be some grand galactic army out there hoping to rid the world of the evils and bring about the Golden Dawn. But that doesn't mean that the tall lizard creature on Earth, currently researching Sector 997 of the Superstition Mountains, doesn't decide to run a test on a lonely hiker drinking a bottle of water. A test that doesn't really need to be done, but a test that he wants to do because it's there and he can. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>